Welcome to another episode of Theo Podcast, the Pandemic Press. I am your host, Roshni Hevawasam, and today we have a guest um, who's going to talk about cybersecurity. He's Nick Espinoza. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello. Hello, how's it going? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You have a really cool room. Ah, <laughs> thank you. This is this is the nerdery. This is what I call it. <laughs> yeah. It would be amazing for the video podcast. Oh, and, yeah. Great. Is yeah, that- I've got. It's just I've got everything that you could think of here. <laughs> uh, just books, movies. Uh, there's about thirty five hundred to four thousand DVDs, Blu-rays, all that stuff behind me. Um, and, uh, over here, I actually have original TV and movie props from Star Trek and, and all of that. So. Yeah. Uh, it's just like, I have, when I was a Star Trek fan with Jane, when she was a captain. Oh, like, Voyager. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've actually, uh, I don't know if I have anything from Voyager, but, uh, let's see. I think I've got a background of it here. Yeah, so this is this is the uh, this is the side of the office to my right that you can't see, mm-hmm. but I've got um, that's an original phaser from um, original series. That's Deep Space Nine and Next Generation. That's Next Generation. Um, that's Enterprise. That's a laptop from Enterprise. And over here, I've got Bones' hypo spray and Admiral Kirk's insignia from Wrath of Khan. Like I'm I'm a total nerd for it. <laughs> so. So fun stuff for me. Really, really cool. I, I can tell that you're a really cool person from this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd, but you know, it's all good. It's all good. I'm a nerd, but I didn't go that uh, that cool <laughs> over, yeah. over the years. I think this is awesome. So you can start by explaining um, who you are on the podcast. Tell about yourself. Sure, sure. Do you, you want to get started then? Yeah. Okay, yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm Nick Espinoza. I'm the chief security fanatic of Security Fanatics, um, and uh, you know we do everything: cybersecurity, cyber warfare, cyber terrorism, infrastructure, government compliance, and all of that. Um, I'm also on the Forbes Technology Council. Um, I have a nationally syndicated radio show in the United States called the Deep Dive. Um, I also write for Forbes and Smirconish of CNN, and. Uh, that's some of the basics right there. I also do TED Talks. I just finished my fourth one the other week. So I was excited for that. I'm so glad you're in my, uh, you're talking on my podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Okay, so um, I want to ask you about cryptocurrency and cybersecurity because um, I feel like some people fear that if they use uh, some types of cryptocurrency, they're secure for... Uh, they have security problems and they fear security problems. What can you tell us about that? 
Yeah. So a lot of people have this misconception that that cryptocurrency is this perfect encryption system and that everything is hardened when, in fact, there are some issues with cryptocurrency that we know about. So, for example, um, the Cloud Security Alliance or CSA actually has a published article that anybody can go read. It's a living Google document that has about 200 plus different types of attacks that you can run against a blockchain configuration. And so so that's something to take into account. Now, the other side of this, too, is that a lot of cryptocurrency right now is very unregulated. It's not being backed by any government uh, you know, around the globe, which means that if for some reason you get your, your cryptocurrency stolen, somebody steals your Bitcoins, that's it. I mean, you don't have any kind of recourse. So like here in the United States, for example, we have FDIC insurance. So if somebody walks into a bank and decides to rob the bank and they steal $100,000 from me, I have FDIC insurance that basically says the federal government here in the United States will give me my money back because the bank is backed by that kind of insurance where there's nothing like that for cryptocurrency. And so we see a lot of theft, especially as people are using all of these different third-party brokers and, and you know financial institutions that are geared towards this and they find vulnerabilities in the security and therefore are able to get into the wallets or they'll run things like transaction rollback attacks and, and other stuff as well. So, so cryptocurrency is very interesting, I think, as a, as a currency, but it's not 100% secure. There's no bulletproof security out there, but the, the technology itself in and of itself, I think is a, is a rather secure method of, of you know, exchanging information, whatever that information is, a Bitcoin or another type of transaction, uh, but understand that, that you know, everything is not without its vulnerabilities. Yeah, so there's a possibility of um, some smart person trying to hack into your account and steal everything. There's a possibility. Yeah, well, and it happens. It happens quite frequently, actually. You know, wh whether it's the accounts themselves that are not as secure as they claim to be, and somebody's able to bypass authentication and simply get in and steal the currency, or uh, you know, you leave it unprotected yourself by not using things like multi-factor authentication, or you have good cyber hygiene in your life, and somebody is able to get in through, let's say, a phishing attack by taking over your computer. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that that, that can be approached. And so like anything, you want to make sure that you're putting the right safeguards in place, whether you're storing your money in an actual bank, you know, in whatever country you're in, or you're using cryptocurrency, you have to make sure you're protecting it at the, at the right level. Okay. So what are the challenges implementing a secure cyber security strategy? So some of the some of the issues, and are you talking more on the personal side or on the business side of things? Well, actually, so part of it is adoption of new cyber defense strategies. Like, so we are always innovating on the cybersecurity side. We never know when that 15-year-old kid is going to break Google, and we all have to slam on the brakes and say, "How do we fix this? How do we defend this?" And so, cybersecurity, unlike regular technology, pivots rather quickly. So, for example, I know that the iPhone 13 will be better than the iPhone 12 because it has a slightly better camera and a slightly better processor, and the 12 is better than the 11 because it has a slightly better camera and a slightly better processor. But again, we don't have that luxury in cybersecurity. And so, what ends up happening is a lot of people and corporations end up being behind because they are not aware of newer tactics, newer strategies, newer products that may defend them better. And therefore, you know, it's a problem that's on the business side and on the user side, but the users also have an extra um, concern as well. 
in the sense that a lot of the latest and greatest threat detection uh, technology capability usually comes out for enterprise business first. And I'm not expecting you to spend $10,000 on antivirus when I would expect a company to, you know, as an example. And so that ends up being an issue as well. I think the other big problem that we have, and it's the number one problem that we have in cybersecurity, is the fact that we really aren't educated on it. The general population doesn't understand that. And studies and research by outfits like Pew Research have shown that in one study, 89% of, of people that they surveyed when given a panel of four different pictures could not figure out which one was multi-factor authentication. That's like nine in 10 people that have no idea what this is. And over half of them couldn't even identify or understand what ransomware really did. These are things that in the cybersecurity community, we need to combat with education because if you don't know that these things are a problem or you don't know that you have tools that can help you defend yourself, you don't know to adopt them or you don't know to avoid the threat. And that I think is probably the biggest issue we have. Yes, uh, so if how can we like face this challenge? Like. Um... Uh, how how do you think like uh, when when our computer gets a virus we install a firewall like what would be the best solution for that right so the best the best solutions for cybersecurity are are typically layered defense meaning you know we are putting in things like firewalls that can actually detect threat as it's coming in and out of the network good endpoint detection response which is next generation antivirus that you know those kinds of things enabling good identity management solutions so multi-factor authentication so you don't just have a single username and password that that gets you into the system you have that second factor that is separated from that username and password. So if I steal your credentials, I still can't get in because I don't have that ever-changing code. These are things that I, I think we can do as table stakes. And, and a lot of these products are, are free or very inexpensive for users. And there are corporate solutions that allow centralized management of a lot of a lot of users, you know, in an organization or corporation. So so it's a basically available for everybody, whether it's from free to very expensive, depending on you know where you where you're at or things, but but that's the issue. But again, it comes back to at the end of the day, I think awareness and education. And there's a lot of good platforms and utilities out there that people can go to just to learn about cyber cybersecurity and cyber hygiene and all of that. And I like to say, like, I can build you a Ferrari's worth of a cyber defense strategy with firewalls and antivirus. But if I'm turning the keys to the Ferrari over to a chimpanzee, how far are we going to get? Yeah, right? We have to learn how to drive. We have to learn how to, 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 to use the car. And, and that's something that people just completely forget. Yeah, the thing is that especially when Microsoft computers came, the, f the first thing I learned to do was to install antivirus and firewalls. <laughs> good, good. Well, and that's that's a great start because a lot of people yeah. don't. And you know, if I'm looking at the Mac side, like almost everybody that has a MacBook just, oh, well, I have a Mac. I'm never going to get infected. Well, that's Apple's it's, marketing. Yeah. But it but we infect apples all the time. We see infected Apple products all the time, whether it's an iPhone, a MacBook, an iPad, whatever it is. I think uh, even uh, uh, Mac has viruses. It's just that we don't know how to like uh, see them and how uh, because I am completely used to the Microsoft where it just tells me like the virus uh, there is a has been a virus uh, in this computer, so they warn us. Right. But if it's an Apple, you don't have those, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you can, the, and and the, the point though is that you can't is that there are plenty of antivirus makers that, that make software for, for MacBooks 
you know, and, and you can integrate that into your math book. iPhone is a different story because it's a closed operating system and it's a closed ecosystem with Apple's app store. And in 2015, Apple in their infinite marketing wisdom removed all of the third-party antivirus options to actually that you could install into an iPhone. So if you go and look at like Norton or McAfee or, you know, take your pick, and you read the fine print, they do everything else for you, but they don't actually scan for viruses. And that is actually a huge detriment, I think, to the iPhone platform. On the Android side, I can download an antivirus all day long and have it scan my, my, my phone or my tablet or whatever that is. And so there's definitely a difference of philosophy between Google and Apple, but, but I think Apple needs to bring that back. But yeah, you can have that in a MacBook though. It's just people don't. They believe the marketing hype. They believe what Apple tells them. Oh, you'll never get infected. And it's it's, it's just not true. Is cyber warfare uh, possible? What's the next big thing? Well, cyber warfare is going on continuously. I mean, typically what you're looking at is intelligence operations between yes. nation state and nation state. And we've actually seen spycraft evolve thanks to things like social media. So there's the one side of it where you know, you have intelligence agencies attempting to break into other intelligence agencies or governments to monitor and spy and all of that. We've seen that throughout the world. The United States has done it. Germany's done it. Russia's definitely doing it. China does it. Uh, the UAE was caught using a, what's known as the Pegasus vulnerability in iPhones to monitor politicians around the world and everybody else. And so, so yeah, that's a continuous, that's a continuous thing that we see going on. And I think that um, you know, the latest phenomenon of that is essentially the misinformation and disinformation campaigns that we've seen on social media platforms like Facebook, because Facebook obviously has about 3 billion users worldwide, and they really have no checks and controls. And that's recently come out thanks to whistleblowers that used to work for it, like Francis Hagen or Haugen that, that just came out a couple of weeks ago and said, this is, yeah, we have foreign intelligence agencies actually running disinformation campaigns, you know, here in the United States and other countries as well. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge problem. As, as far as the next big cyber warfare thing, I mean, we're going to continue to see innovations in weaponization of third parties, I think is one of those big things. So uh, for example, in 2015, 2016, somebody created a virus known as Mirai. And this, this virus was essentially infecting IoT devices. So, you know, the, the DVR that you had in your house or the cameras or the, the cheap routers that you could buy, you know, at your local retail store, they were, they were infecting those and then weaponizing them against targets. Well, what we've seen, um, and even recently, is it looks like um, variants of Mirai are starting to be used by intelligence operations so that they can infect basically computers around the globe and then turn them around and weaponize them against targets for bandwidth attacks. We literally just had one in the last few days or so that looks like a Mirai variant. Um, I'm actually still researching that. So I think that's one of those things that we're going to continue to see. And we'll always see the information warfare side of this. We'll always see you know, those kinds of maneuverings and, and everything else, but everybody's breaking into everybody and that's that's not going to change anytime soon. Yeah, but like the way you explain it is like in the movies, you know, like I have never actually witnessed it like in person, like I, I have never come across a situation like that because mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, I come from Sri Lanka, so that doesn't happen mm -hmm. very often. So now that right. you're telling me, like it sounds like one of those movies. <laughs> Right. Well, but but even then, like in Sri Lanka, I mean, there that you've had some political strife in Sri Lanka over the last 10 years, you know, yeah. and, and so by virtue of that, you know, those two factions, I'm, I'm sure they've got people that are looking at breaking into the other side, you know, one or the other to get information. I mean, that's 
that's basically the nature of, of how this works. And, and so, so yeah, that's, it, it, we see it quite a bit. Um, you know, in fact, like, you know, here in the United States, for example, when we had a massive disinformation campaign in our 2016 election, that was Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. And we all know, yes, obviously, Donald yes. Trump won. Um, Congress actually released all 3,500 advertisements that the Russian Internet Research Agency was putting out into society to drive a wedge between, you know, the right and the left. So, so we see these things quite a bit. And Sri Lanka is going to be no different, not to mention your relations with the Indian government. So, I mean, there's like all of these different things I, I think you know happen in in that vein and and so it's there and you know we've witnessed it yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I think I think uh, but, but we know less uh, about it uh, in our country but we when it happens to the U.S. we are like all eyes on U.S. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah well and so and to be fair I mean we are the largest target for attack yeah. in in the world just by virtue I think of who we are and so, yeah, so it's, it's, we, we tend to be that bellwether, meaning, meaning where we go, everybody else tends to go and when in terms, in terms of cyber attack, but, but this country is, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm here in Chicago and this country is under attack 24 hours a day, you know, but so is China, so is Germany, you know, so is Australia, so is, you know, I'm sure Sri Lanka as well, India, you know, take your pick. So, yeah. so it's a, it's a global phenomenon. Nobody's, nobody's really immune from it. Uh, with uh, genius hackers on the loose, how will businesses and uh, governments cope with this? Well, part of it, part of it is adoption. I mean, it, we, I just, I literally do like every week, I do a breaches of the week uh, video. And the last one I did the other day, basically talked about the statistics and numbers globally for 2021. And we are on pace. We've already exceeded 2020's data breach numbers. And we are on pace to see a record number of data breaches this year. So, so this is a huge problem. It's an issue that governments have because governments tend to be very slow to adopt change, especially governments that are more based in democracy, meaning we need to make a change. And then we have parties that will just argue about it and won't make a decision. And therefore it gets delayed in some way, shape or form. Uh, you know, and so by virtue of that, we have we have those problems, uh, you know, in a lot of places around the world, the United States being no different than that, where um, basically governments start to assume what is known as technology debt, meaning they're using older systems and these older systems are more and more expensive to maintain over time. And so they don't have any new money to actually replace everything, but you be also become vulnerable over time as well. And so governments, I think worldwide, need to, I think, band together. Uh, you know, we have in the United Nations, for example, an anti-hacking treaty that is, uh, has 27 countries in it, the United States being one, Canada, uh, I know Colombia, a lot of the European nations as well. I don't know if Sri Lanka's in that, um, but most notably China and Russia did not sign the anti-hacking treaty, you know? And, and I think it really behooves, I think those allied countries, those countries that have really good relationships with each other to really get together and say, hey, we're gonna set limits and rules on this, but it also gives essentially those countries the ability to leverage that power against those countries that don't want to play don't want to play by those rules as well. So I think that's something that that we really need to be focusing on. And I think the United Nations can, you know, can lead the way. And I've done some work with the United Nations ITU, that's our international um, telecom side, developing, uh, you know, they're, it's on hold right now, but they're in the process of developing cyber defense strategies for developing nations that don't have good cyber hygiene. There's a lot of countries out there um, that, that simply are in the process of developing it, but they're not as robust as some other countries out there. So, so we'll see where that goes.
That's cool. So how should consumers or maybe like um, crypto owners keep themselves safe online? Ah, so, well, it's a couple of different things. With the crypto side, uh, you know, you can get secure wallets that are offline. So in other words, you know, I can't hack into your bank account and steal your cryptocurrency if it's physically offline because now it's separated from the internet. Um, I think the first thing that everybody needs to do is just become aware, understand what a phishing email looks like, understand that, you know, that that email that, you know, your aunt, your auntie sent you is probably not good. <laughs> you know, it's probably misinformation or fake news or infected or something because auntie has no idea that that's, you know, what that is, right? And every, everybody's got an auntie in their life in that sense, right? And, and, and I think though having that awareness, I think is the very first step to this. And then on top of that, we combine that with, you know, good defenses, good antivirus, good firewalls, good, you know, strategies to make sure that, that your data is protected encryption policies so that, you know, if somebody steals your device or steals your computer, that they can't access any of your information or keeping sensitive information by files encrypted as well. So like if you have a Microsoft Excel file, you can actually encrypt it. And so if somebody steals it, they can't open it. You know, those kinds of things, I, I, I don't think we, we really understand. Also making sure we've got multi-factor authentication on everything. There should be no login into the cloud in your life that doesn't have multi-factor authentication where you have sensitive data. You know, so if you're logging into your bank, you should absolutely have that, you know. That's, that's kind of cool to think about because um, the thing is that uh, I... I didn't know for cryptocurrency there were actually wallets online offline. Yeah. I thought that was like only online. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a big problem because if you lose the password to your physical wallet, you can't get into your cryptocurrency. It, it, exactly. <laughs> it's like right. um, it's not yeah. like the normal email password that you forget. This one, no, right? Yeah. Right. You lose and, access to money. <laughs> yes. Right. And the spam emails that you get, it's like um like recently I got uh, an email, like, so, so my aunt would completely believe this. So it's like about a deceased person who died and apparently they had the same surname with me, uh, surname as me. And then I apparently get 40% of the shares apparently. And this is a whole story just to get. Uh... <laughs> yeah. 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 That's uh you know, it's like it's like the Nigerian prince that needs your help with his revolution. So if yes. you send him a thousand dollars, he'll unlock a million dollars for you. You know, those kinds of things. Yeah, those scams are very, very possible. And and part of it, though, is that, you know, when you're looking at the aunties of the world is that they come from a generation where they didn't grow up around technology. They didn't grow up with this, you know. And so by virtue of that, they extend trust in a way that we simply don't. When their friend says something, they trust it more then when our friends say something and say, well, that doesn't make sense. I might want to Google that. I might want to double check that, you know? And, and it's just, it's just a different, it's just a different generation. It really is. Yeah. But that's also why the elderly, older people are the number one targets for, for personal scams because they, they believe way more than you or I do. Yeah. I can remember um, my grandma used to say she got a, like a spam email and then she's like, Oh, I get a free iPhone. And then I'm yeah. like, no, you don't. Yeah. You ever <laughs> right. get it. <laughs> exactly. We all have we all have an aunt. I'm telling you, we do. <laughs> uh, okay. So what are the latest trends in uh, cryptos and cyber uh, cybersecurity? Uh, so the latest trends, the, the two big things we've been working on on the cybersecurity side is one, 
really having a push for identity management because we have, and I've mentioned that before, but we have so many stolen usernames and passwords out there that it becomes just a, a huge, huge problem. And so having a better understanding of user awareness, meaning an identity management solution that understands that you know, my user shouldn't be logging in from the other side of the world at three in the morning and will shut me off, uh, you know, and also giving me that multi-factor authentication is going a long way. The other thing that we are really looking at too, and this goes for personal up to corporate and government, is actually supply chain risk. We put our data everywhere. We give it and we put it into the cloud, whether we give it to Google or we give it to Facebook or whether we're paying for service. Uh, you know, we give away personally identifiable information. And so understanding where your data is, understanding who has access to it, understanding that it could potentially be data mined as well or stolen if they've got weak security controls is a huge problem. A lot of the data breaches that we see at the corporate level come not from the company getting hit, but because they outsourced an aspect of their business, like human resources is doing all their payroll stuff and has all of their health information. And then that third party gets hit. And now this company has to declare a data breach because they gave their data to that, to that company that wasn't securing it. So those are some huge things that are going on. In terms of cryptocurrency, I mean, uh, blockchain in, in and of itself really hasn't changed in terms of a technology, but we continue to see just, a, I think, a rapid pace of currencies being created. And so by virtue of that, we are seeing a lot of different scams that, that continuously come out, whether it's fake exchanges that are offering you guarantees where they can't offer you guarantees or uh, you know, a cryptocurrency that, that is um, susceptible to things like a pump and dump scheme, meaning a group of investors are in it together and they artificially inflate the price. So everybody starts buying it and then they sell and get out. You know, which then basically crashes the currency. We see a lot of those kinds of scams. And those are very heavily regulated on stock exchanges and like actual stock exchanges and markets around the globe from, you know, Wall Street here to the Nikkei in Tokyo to, you know, London and everybody in between as well that it's a stock exchange. Um, you know, those, those are things that you can't do. But in cryptocurrency, you can do it, <laughs> you know, and oftentimes you get away with it. So, so those are things that we, we are constantly always on the lookout for. And a lot of investors, unfortunately, just get excited about this and fall for those things. So what's the difference between um, cyber security team and managing IT, uh, IT teams? So they're two different animals. And I like to say a lot that IT is not cybersecurity. We're married at the hip. I mean, we need them. You know, but but they're two different animals. I you will never hire me as a cybersecurity professional to go and fix your printer, right? Or maintain your wireless. You you I'm not. That's not my job. That's not what I do. Um, but they are two different animals. So IT tends to be that infrastructure side. They'll build the infrastructure to specification. They'll maintain the infrastructure special specification. Cybersecurity's job is to make sure that infrastructure is hardened, it's secured, it's monitored, good policies and controls are play in place, everybody is educated. And one of the differences I like to talk about when I'm on stage and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about these things is I simply say, you know, if your team hasn't, if your if your IT team hasn't sat down and considered um, calling in a bomb threat to one of your clients to clear a building so you can hack into it, you're probably not doing cybersecurity. We are always looking at threat. We have the largest tinfoil hats. We are the most paranoid people in technology by virtue of what we do. 
You know, like, so when you sent me a link to say, oh, hey, like, you know, come join my meeting here for my podcast. The first thing I did was copy and paste that link into a threat detection system to make sure that you weren't trying to scam me. <laughs> you know, like, like this wasn't like a, like a phishing link or anything like that. If my mother sends me something, you know, I, I immediately scan it. Like I don't open her pictures or mm-hmm. links, you know, because I don't know. And, and, and so, so it's a different animal and IT is needed, you know, love IT folk you know, they're great. They keep the lights on, they keep everything running, but it's just, it's just a different animal. And one of the biggest problems I think organizations out there have is that they equate IT with cybersecurity. And now you have IT that is implementing a cybersecurity solution, which at best is a data security solution, which is a subset of cybersecurity. So, you know, so they're doing a little bit of it, but it's not, it's not holistic in nature. And that's where a lot of companies get into trouble. Okay. So like, why um i i want to actually ask you this because um actually this is a question of people who know so much about cybersecurity that i do not know of um but i have actually heard of it it's called um the triple handshake what is that <laughs> so I essentially, and I believe what you're talking about is yes, the three-way handshake. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe that's what you're equating that to is the is the what the NSA calls a rule of two. Essentially, what you're talking about is establishing multiple layers of secured encryption technology before you actually transfer and move data. So, for example, when you go to your bank and you see the little green lock. Uh, you know, obviously that means that you're running SSL or TLS encryption. So as you're sitting on your computer and you go out to, to the bank, you have an encrypted pipeline. But layering that, meaning let's say you're attaching a VPN to that, which means now you have one, the, the actual encryption that your bank is giving you, and you're wrapping that around um, another encrypted layer is essentially what, what we're talking about. So as we are establishing these connections, we're validating our identities, we're adding multiple layers of security and encryption on top of threat detection, hopefully. And, and so by virtue of that, if somebody is running what is known as a man in the middle attack to capture that information, it's encrypted in two layers and can't be accessed. So I believe that's probably what you're what you're talking about as well. Yes, because like I, I didn't know what was this, but I know that a lot of people who uh who were uh, really great with IT were talking about it and I didn't know what exactly what was it so I was like why don't I ask you <laughs> yeah 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 no it's any anything that anything that we have that can establish uh, an identity to verify who the person is and then run uh, basically multiple layers of encryption as we are moving data back and forth or even if the data is just sitting on our computer uh, you know the better and that's one of those things that that we are really pushing along with the identity management side that goes really hand in hand with that yes this is why Microsoft computers are better than uh, uh, Mac because you get to learn like at least the basics of this whole thing <laughs> yeah well you tend to have a lot more options on in Windows than you do on Mac uh, you know, in terms of your choices for yeah. security, choices for encryption and all of that. Mac is a much more closed ecosystem and not everybody writes software, you know, for the Mac, but everybody writes for Windows, Windows you know, yeah. so so Windows tends to be more versatile, but that also makes it more, um, you know, more, more of a target because it's a bigger target. There are more Windows machines out there than there are Macs. Yes. And so by virtue of that, it's just a bigger target, but you have more tools. You have more yes. options to, to secure it with. 
yeah and then you can make use of uh, it like i tell my friends like it's more worth it to buy a microsoft because you can you have so many tools and you can make use of it for your business for or whatever you have going on and i think that uh, most people who are mac users do not make use of um, everything that's there i think it's the microsoft users that make use of everything what's there Right. Well, and most most Mac people that I know yeah. don't really know technology that well beyond how to use what they need to use. You know, so Android in that sense is more versatile than iPhone because it's more of an open system. I have more flexibility to program it, to harden it, to weaken it, to you know do whatever I want with it. Whereas Apple is very closed, meaning you're just going to download the apps that you want to use and you're going to use them. And as long as you can connect to wireless and you can get on on cellular, you're fine. You know, and and so that tends to be what I see. But the most the people that that are are typically those that are more tech savvy, I think, tend to lean towards the Androids and the the Windows and also the Linuxes of the world as well. And to, I mean, and to be fair, Apple has built a beautiful operating system. It's yeah. built on a Unix core. Um, you know, it's a very stable operating system. That's in part because it's a closed ecosystem, so it's very hard to you know, write apps for it that, that aren't heavily vetted. Um, but again, you lose, I think, a lot of that versatility and you don't have all of the options that you do with Microsoft. It's just, it, they, you, it's just not there. It's, it's not. Yeah. And uh, going back to politics again, so how does cybersecurity work uh, regarding politics? Uh, well, that's a that's a loaded question. <laughs> oh, so so politics in, in general, and by that I mean governments in general, tend to generate an absolute ton of information. They are gathering information on their citizens. They are creating, you know, everything from laws to to administering various aspects of of society. Um, and so, by virtue of that, they generate, <coughs> excuse me, a huge amount of information. And so that information is obviously very much targeted, uh, you know, by everybody from foreign governments to criminal elements to people that just want to see if they can break into the government, you know, and, and, and everybody in between. And so by virtue of that, cybersecurity becomes very much hand in hand with the government. And as, as governments grow and mature and continue to expand, so does the cybersecurity footprint to basically match what the government is doing. And when you when you fall down on that, when you get behind in cybersecurity and with government agencies, then you tend to see large disasters. We had one of those here in late December in the United States with the SolarWinds data breach that got multiple governments around the world um, hit. But we learned that the Russians were walking through the Department of Homeland Security, which is supposed to be a rather secure branch of the U.S. government. You know, the Department of Treasury, NASA, a whole bunch of others, you know, and that's and other governments around the world, not to mention huge corporations and everything. And so I think that was a wake up call in the sense that our new president, Joe Biden, has been you know, issuing executive orders um, and getting Congress to pass cybersecurity bills. But, but cybersecurity and politics, I think, is, you know, is, is a very important thing. Not to mention the fact that if we're looking at the misinformation and disinformation side, we've seen, especially in the 2016 uh, election, where politicians uh, essentially had email compromises and then they got put out on WikiLeaks. So John Podesta, who was, I think, the department of, he was a, he was a cabinet member, um, I believe, in the Obama administration. He had his personal emails dumped out, and he had communications with, obviously, other leaders in the United States, like Hillary Clinton and some others. And so everybody saw that, and that actually led to conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, so cybersecurity right now, I think, is very heavily embedded into 
politics because it has to be because politicians and political parties and governments are, are, are constantly being looked at and attacked. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they stock criminals' information, right? And some of them can be disappeared, gone, like yeah. a person. It can be wiped out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we see that as well. I mean, there are some organizations that have their data simply erased, you know, not just ransomed, but but erased, you know, from history. And that obviously would be a huge problem for any organization, but it would be disastrous for a government. I mean, imagine, you know, the Sri Lankan government, for example, mm-hmm having all of their data wiped out and they have no idea who their citizens are or who to issue passports to. Yeah. You know, it's a huge problem. You know, if you think about it in that sense, you know, Mm -hmm. that would be chaos. It would be absolute chaos for them. So you never know. Same here in the United States. It would be absolute chaos. Yeah. And uh, uh, I know that people in the United States, because this, I see this in the movies, like people change passports, they become a new person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well i so so movies i i'm one of those people that you know when i'm watching a movie they're like oh i'm hacking the pentagon in 60 seconds i'm like that's not how that works like oh no that's <laughs> yeah that's no unreal. that's not right <laughs> right so so yeah i mean i i can't i can't exactly go around and you know to make myself bill smith in california when mm-hmm. i'm you know nigga spinoza here in chicago you know it, it's it, it's it's a little harder than that but but yeah, I mean, you know, we have operations where you can buy on the dark web, you can buy fake passports. If I wanted to be a fake citizen of Sri Lanka, for example, I'm sure I could, you know, for a couple hundred dollars, like you could be a fake U.S. citizen for a couple hundred dollars. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's usually how those things work. But but, you know, try going through customs with a fake passport and see how far you get. Yeah. You know, so everything's relative. Right. Yes. Uh, what are ways people can uh, experience cy- uh, cyber attacks, especially in the cryptocurrency? So what are some types of cyber attacks? Yeah. Okay. Um, so obviously one is basically authentication bypass, meaning somebody has found a way to exploit your login because let's say the, the, the supplier of your login or the infrastructure you're logging into um, is weak or misconfigured and simply bypass it and get access to your account. Um, you know, there are types of attacks uh, in cryptocurrency called rollback attacks, where you attempt to roll back the ledger to essentially, um, you know, gather cryptocurrency that that simply didn't make it onto the books or or adjust the ledger accordingly to, to, to you know, make more money. There, there's a couple of different attacks like that. I mean, the biggest one on the planet, though, hands down is ransomware right now. You know, which is basically an, an infection that attempts to evade and bypass your threat detection systems like your antivirus and your firewalls, and then install it in, into your computer, encrypt all of your data. And now usually what we're seeing is an exfiltration of data, meaning the attackers are copying your data out. And so even if you have a good backup, you say, okay, I, you know, my computer's encrypted, but I have a good backup. They say, here's a copy of your data, and we're going to put it out to the world if you don't pay us. And so we're starting to see those kinds of things. And that has been a very, very huge problem in the last couple of years, and it continues to increase. It's called double extortion. And now we're seeing triple and quadruple extortion on top of that. But, but primarily, it's they copy out the data, then they lock out your data, and they say, hey, we have a copy of your data. Pay us, or we're going we're gonna to show the world what you're doing huge problem yeah you can also um you can also see other people's emails as well mm-hmm. yeah well and that's part of it if, if you're able to get in uh you know we've seen that especially when it comes to like whistleblower sites like wikileaks yes. for example you know where corporate 
corporations have their, their executive email boxes completely just stolen and then dumped out there and you can go searching through emails. I mentioned that in the 2016 election, but, but it happens to corporations actually quite a bit as well. It's basically called a business email compromise. Um, you know, and so somebody gets into your email account and they can read these things, they can understand who you're talking with. And if you're, you know, if you're a leader in the company that has the ability to move money, then I can basically make myself like a financial advisor or spoof a financial advisor to the business and start offering, say, hey, move money here, move money there. We're going to invest in this or that. And I will look exactly like the financial advisor and then they will start moving money. I had a client that lost over a million dollars that way. Um, you know, when the person talking to the financial advisor, or rather she thought she was talking to the financial advisor and she was actually talking to a criminal and the criminal kept saying, oh, we're going to take, we're going to invest here or here, take it from this account, take it from that account, because the criminal knew the entire history and conversation. Oh, how are your kids? Mine are great because they, they can see all of the correspondence that goes back years and they see this relationship. So everything matches, uh, you know, and it's a huge problem and people don't pay attention to these things. And all it was was a single letter off in the email that they were using and it looked exactly the same. Uh, how do you like avoid those uh, issues? So a couple of different things. Uh, the first First things first is if you had multi-factor authentication installed in that case, um, we wouldn't, I would never have been called in. They never would have lost over a million dollars because the person was able to compromise thanks to stolen usernames and password, a username and password to get right into that mailbox. And there you go. Same with Colonial Pipeline. If you remember the Colonial Pipeline hit or heard about the Colonial Pipeline hit uh, from you know six months ago or whatever that was, that was a stolen username and password in the dark web. And they used it right just to straight log in to Colonial Pipeline and knock out the billing. And so by virtue of that, Colonial Pipeline shut down the pipe. you know, And that was feeding a couple hundred million people gasoline or petroleum on, on the Eastern seaboard of the United States. So, so um, I think the first thing that you do is multi-factor authenticate everything. That's why it's so important because you never know when your emails are, or passwords are compromised. And a lot of people use the same email address and password for one site as they do for another. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so if I've got that, I'm going to try all the sites that I can, you know? Yeah, that is really scary unless uh, you put video cameras all over the uh, place and see see like who's physically hacking. Right. Well, yeah. but 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 yeah, but also not even. So like so for yeah. example, Microsoft Office 365, I don't have to break into your computer to get access. Yeah. I can just log into the portal if I have your username and password and I can get a web version of the email that you're synchronizing on your computer. So it's not even monitoring your system. It's it's making sure that Microsoft is secure in that sense. And that's that's where multi-factor authentication comes in as well as, you know, good so, controls in, yeah. in Office. So never share like um, uh, information, like important information in emails. Um, yeah, I, I don't recommend it. So, you know, if, if I ever had a client that said, hey, I want to send you my credit card and I'll email it to you, my answer is no, <laughs> you know, don't, don't send that. I don't want that liability. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, there are secure ways to transfer information, you know, or if I'm signing important documents, uh, you know, and I want to send those to, you know, somebody that, let's say, helps me like an accountant or, or something along those lines, there are ways to, you know, securely send that information outside of email so that it's not, it's not vulnerable in that way, but people send personal stuff through email all the time, including documents that could be used to run identity theft scams on people and they just don't realize it. Again, that comes down to the education side of this. We have to train people 
to understand that this is a this is a huge problem. Then how do you actually send those like documents to the other person by mail? So, <laughs> no, no. So so for example, I have an encrypted portal in the cloud that has two layers of encryption yeah. on it. And I could, let's say I'm sending it to you, I could invite you, have your identity verified, you log in, and then you get access to what I want you to get access to, and then you can download it into your computer. Okay. You know, or we can send it in two different ways. So for example, let's say I know your login is your email address. Maybe you're using the Signal app on your computer, on your phone, and I'm using Signal. And if we were to send a, each other a message using Signal, it's encrypted end to end. Signal is known good encryption. It's, um, it's a nonprofit that is based on privacy. And so I could send you sensitive information that way. There's a lot of different ways that you can achieve that, but I don't mail things. <laughs> the last thing I need Especially is the mailman opening them. it yeah, like, <laughs> or getting lost in the mail. Yes. Is, is texting more secure or emailing? So um, interestingly enough, I would say email is more secure than text messaging. And, and the reason being is that we recently um, actually went through a data breach. There's a company called Cineverse that over 300 of the major mobile carriers around the globe use to actually interchange for text messages and move text messages around. So if I'm texting you on the, like the, just the native app on my carrier here in the United States, like AT&T or Sprint or Verizon or any one of those, and I'm, I'm texting you across the globe, you know, to whatever your mobile carrier is, Cineverse is involved with that. And they found out that they had been compromised for five years and somebody was reading, could read billions and billions and billions of text messages moving back and forth on any carrier, virtually any carrier around the globe. It was a huge, huge problem. And so text messaging, I've never considered secure. And even before that, I know that my carrier can see the text message that I'm sending. So if I'm saying, hey, meet me at five o'clock, they know that I'm, I'm meeting you at five o'clock. If I'm saying, hey, send me the secret nuclear program, you know, schematics that we stole, <laughs> you know, they're going to see that too. There's nothing secure about that, you know? And that's also one of the reasons why, like for text messaging, I use the Signal app is because if, uh, you know, if I have to text people back and forth and they're not on Signal, it's a regular text. But as soon as one of my friends or colleagues or clients or whoever has Signal, immediately those messages are private and protected. And so it's, it, I, I, I tend to like using that. Okay. Thanks for the advice because I feel like um, nobody, I don't think school ever teaches you this. Even universities don't teach you this. So people do not know about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a huge problem. There's just a lack of education on, you know, cyber, cyber awareness and all these things, but also good apps to use. I mean, you have to, you have to go searching for these things yes. and I think they should be very readily available for, for everybody. Yeah. But uh, are phone calls actually secure? Phone calls? Yeah. No, no. I mean, yeah. so if I if I were to pick up a just again on my mobile phone and call you, uh, you know, my carrier knows I'm calling you. Um, it's going through their network. Uh, you know, do they have the ability to to read and record those calls? Yes. Are they? Probably not. Um, yeah. You know, but it, it also depends because it, if you look at it, a lot of intelligence agencies around the globe tend to want to monitor phone calls as well. So we had that whole issue here in the United States where if you were calling to, let's say, an area that was like known to have, let's say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or, you know, another terrorist organization there, uh, we know that the National Security Agency, the NSA, was monitoring those phone calls to make sure that you weren't, you know, coordinating some kind of attack or, 
you know, whatever you were doing. So, so those, so understand that if they can monitor for that, they could monitor technically anything that they wanted to monitor. Not to mention all your calls are logged and, and recorded and all of that. In the same way that, you know, we're sitting here on Zoom having a conversation. Zoom has a record of this. Zoom knows and their backend, we can't see it, but they know the IP address that I'm connecting to. They know the IP address of you. They know your account. They know I'm, you know, have an account. And so, so th there's information that can be, that can be gleaned from those kinds of things as well. Yeah. We're not as anonymous as we yeah. think. And yeah, so I can imagine like uh, even for the unimportant kind of conversations that go on, it must be funny for a person to actually go through them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, could you imagine having to sift through all of that kind of information? Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just minor, minor stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, and maybe some major stuff, who knows, but yeah, the last thing I would do is have, let's say, like an argument with a loved one over text message, <laughs> you yeah. know, because, you know, or Facebook Messenger, like how, yeah. how much information are we giving Facebook, you know? So, yeah, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, okay, so are there vulnerabilities in cryptocurrency security? Are there vulnerabilities in yes. cri cryptocurrency? Uh, crypto security. Cri yes. Yeah. So as I, as I mentioned earlier on, the Cloud Security Alliance um, actually has a Google Doc out there, um, or Google Sheet out there, excuse me, that literally goes through about 200 different vulnerabilities um, that that cryptocurrencies can can be susceptible to. Um, so while while cryptocurrency in and of itself, the 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 actual cryptography behind it seems to be mathematically excellent, that doesn't mean it's not susceptible to attack. And so by virtue of that, those are those would be considered vulnerabilities. And I would urge everybody to go look at the Cloud Security Alliance. And if you just Google Cloud Security Alliance crypto vulnerabilities, I'm sure they'll, the, the sheet will pop up in the first few hits. But it's it's an interesting read. It really is. People have no idea. Yeah. Um, what is the type of security used for AI technology? Can you explain it and the vulnerabilities? Yeah. Meaning, meaning how are we applying AI in cybersecurity or how can AI be applied to cryptography? Um, both in- Okay, so, yeah. so we're using artificial intelligence in cybersecurity, um, especially on the monitoring for threat intelligence side, because it's much faster for an artificial intelligence to actually go through all of the output and logging that threat detection systems like firewalls have. And so if I were to have somebody looking at logging 24 hours a day, one, you burn out. Two, you're going to miss things. But the artificial intelligence just keeps on going, checking absolutely everything. And then it starts to understand patterns, patterns of threat. Maybe it's noise and doesn't matter. And by virtue of it, as it finds that, it's, it's tasked to essentially alert humans to say, hey, I've got an ongoing attack, an ongoing problem, something else is going on, help me there. So a artificial intelligence you know, as you're applying machine and deep machine learning and deep learning is very important in the cybersecurity field right now. It's helping us um, detect these threats way faster than we were ever able to before. Now, in terms of artificial intelligence for cryptography, um, there have been actually a lot of really interesting experiments in creating new cryptographic standards based on artificial intelligence to essentially have something that would become uncrackable. And the example I'll give you is Bob, Alice, and Eve. Um, these are three supercomputers that Google has that were essentially working on this. And so Bob and Alice were essentially trained to communicate with each other using cryptographic standards. And Eve, which stands for eavesdropper, was yeah. essentially there to disrupt that, to capture that information, to see if 
if Eve could crack essentially the communication that Bob and Alice was doing. And so when they initially started this project, Eve would easily break in, easily see what Bob and Alice were doing. But over time, it got harder and harder and harder to the point where Eve did not have really the possibility of cracking the unique cryptography that Bob and Alice had created communicating to each other as supercomputers. And what the Google engineers found was that the artificial intelligence's approach to how they were creating and applying cryptography was unlike anything humanity had ever seen. And so as we are looking at that, the practical application of that could be that we have, let's say, an artificial intelligence platform. Let's say I have it on my phone, you have it on your phone. And if we are going to communicate, our, our AIs basically talk and create something completely unique and random in encryption. And now we can talk and it would be almost impossible, if not impossible, to essentially break that. You know, then you start applying quantum encryption to that, which is the next generation, and it it becomes that much more, more difficult. And uh, one last question. So what are the sensitive data that need a trusted obligations? What, what are sensitive data? Yeah. Um, well, first things first, on the personal side, any information that could be run could be basically used to run an identity theft scam on you. So basically meaning, let's say a national ID number or a passport number, your name, your address, your phone number, your date of birth, you know, your full name, surname, you know, what, what, whatever, what, whatever information there that would allow me to walk into a bank and say, hey, you know, I'm Roshni, give me money, you know, that, that I think is one of those things. Secondarily, it would be sensitive information that you would not want out there into the general public. This could be health information. So maybe you don't want the world to know that you have cancer or you know whatever you have, that is other, another class of information. Some people share that freely. And so you know, you know, they know they have cancer, their friends know they have cancer, Facebook knows they have cancer, you know, um, you know, and so I think understanding those kinds of things on the corporate side, it would also be intellectual property, meaning you have developed something as an organization that is unique to you that gives you some kind of competitive advantage. And you want to safeguard that from from theft from your competitors or, or from anybody else that's that's looking to potentially ransom you. So, so it's, uh, I think those are the core things right now, but, but keeping our identities safe and secure, I think is of paramount importance right now. Yeah. Thank you so much for being in this uh, podcast. I think um, I tried my best to come up with uh, good questions. No, they were great. You, yeah, you answered them so well. I feel like now everybody has an idea of uh, cyber security because even I had a, like a faintish idea. I just knew how to do the basics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Well, like I said, I'm happy. I'm happy to continue to educate. And um, interestingly enough, you're one of three I'm doing today. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to spread the word. And, and when you, um, I think you've got my contact information. When you yes. put it out live, let me let me know. And are are you connected to me on LinkedIn? Uh, no, um, okay. but I'm if available. On, yeah, yeah, if you're on LinkedIn, yeah, if you're on LinkedIn, send me a connection. And when you put it out on LinkedIn, um, you should put it out on LinkedIn. For example, tag me, and I'll make sure to share it and all that kind of stuff. Same with Twitter and and everything else. Thank you so much, uh, Nick. Uh, Thank it, you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure being here, uh, having you here, and also. Like uh, I learned a lot of stuff and and now I know where to go and read and exactly what kind of stuff to read. I had only a basic knowledge and that was from pretty much all levels. (laughs) 
No worries. No worries. Great. I'm glad I could help and uh, good luck. I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation we have with cybersecurity expert Dix Espinoza. Anyways, guys, uh, make sure you subscribe to our channel. We are there on, we're expanding actually. We're everywhere. You can find us on every podcast website, probably. Um, you can listen to us at Teo Podcast, colon, the Pandemic Press on any device. I am your host, Rashti Hevawasam, and I am signing out.